Welcome to Life Source Church. We are so glad you found us. We hope that you will experience God with us as you hear the preaching of the Word. Thank you, Dan, for helping us out there. For those of you who came in late, uh, yeah. Last weekend, Matt was up all night with the teenagers, and that does a number on his voice. And so rather than keep fighting that for weeks on end, had Dan lead the day to try to give that a rest. So. Well, you know, I think the older that you get, the more likely it is that you have sinful episodes in your past that you really regret, that you wish you weren't there. But you don't have to be real old for that to be true. In fact, I think that, that probably m most of us humans, by the time we are an older teenager, we already have things somewhere in our past there that we wish were different. And then obviously, he says, as we go through life, the longer we go. So we have things either in our past that either before we got saved, depending on when you came to Christ, or maybe way back in the early years of your Christian life, things that you did uh, that still kind of come up and haunt you from time to time. Uh, maybe sometimes more often than you wish. Uh, it could be any combination of things. It could be uh, that you lied and maybe lived a pattern of lies, uh, that you hurt relationships because of that, that you, you cheated, you stole. Uh, it could be that you were actually involved in something violent, maybe illegal, maybe not. Uh, immorality of some kind, maybe a, a pattern, ongoing pattern of immorality. Uh, all sorts of things, you know. It's not like there's not plenty of ways to sin, right? And so we have those things in our past. And, and they can really work against us today. You know, whether it was five years ago or 35 years ago. All right? Yes. So the children are dismissed. The children's church, if you haven't already left. Um, so let me tell you what happens to you. A, a, a number of things happen to you when this is the reality in your life, that there are things of the past. And by the way, you know, it could be, we, we talked some last week, it came up, we talked about things that happened to you in your past. I mean, you were abused in some way or wrongfully treated. And, and if, especially if you were young, you have zero responsibility for that. Actually, you have zero responsibility anytime somebody else does you wrong. But the reality is that you may have, at that time or for long time following, responded to that in ways that were sinful. You know, you made bad choices then. But he, so here's what happens to us. You know, we're going through life, and it seems like maybe things are starting to pick up speed. Uh, we're, things are going well, and then something happens, whether it's a, a temptation that we face or something that somebody says or does or just a memory that comes to mind. And it's like this. It's like the enemy, Satan, and, and don't, he's probably not directly involved with you like this, but it's like Satan goes, okay, hey, wait, wait, look. See that? That's who you are. That, that, remember that? That's all you'll ever be. 
And then we're stuck here struggling with this, fighting this. And, and you know, if we aren't careful, we start to believe that. We may believe it from the beginning. And, and so we, we handle it one two ways. Either we, sometimes we just give up and just do whatever, which only lines us up for more regrets later. Or other times we just go, oh, no, didn't, didn't really, I'm not going to think about that. I'm just going to keep it back there somewhere. It's not the place we want to live. How do we deal with these things? And by the way, if you're here today and you don't have that major kind of thing, thank God that you don't. But at the same time, realize that, that you know people who do. And there are people that you know who need your help with this. And so what we're going to look at today matters to every one of us here. So what is the answer? How do we deal with it? Well, Jesus had a couple of conversations we want to look at today that bring this issue up. It arises, and we want to see what he has to say about it. So let's take our Bibles today, turn to the Gospel of John as we continue in our conversations with Jesus. Uh, we're going to be on page 1224 in the Bible that's in the pew. So if you don't have your own Bible with you today, we encourage you to take the one that's there in the pew and follow along with us. John chapter four. Fairly well-known story, probably to many of you. Uh, Jesus was traveling from Judah, which is in the southern part of Israel, to Galilee, which was the northern part of Israel. And lying in between was an area called Samaria. And the Jewish people had really no love for the Samaritans. The Samaritans had kind of developed their own religious beliefs based off of Judaism and had twisted things and had added things and, and left out a lot of things. And so the Jews really didn't like them. So normally what they would do, in fact, let me just give you an example. Let's, let's say for some reason or other, uh, we felt that way about Framingham. Does anybody feel that way about Framingham? Ah, oh, one of you anyway. Okay, yeah, two of you are right. It'd be like this. You say, well, man, you know what? I don't even want to be close to Framingham, so I'm not, gonna, I'm not going down the turnpike to get to Boston. I'm going to drive down the turnpike to 495. I'm going to take 495 north. I'm going to eventually catch into two, and I'm going to take two into Boston because I do not want to go through Framingham. Now, that seems kind of weird to us, uh, but for them it was a little more practical because the reality is if you were, you didn't travel by turnpike then, you walked, or you might if you were very rich, ridden an, an animal, but you walked, and so you had to go through Samaria. And so most Jewish people who were serious about being faithful to God, it was a mixed up way of thinking, but they would detour around Samaria to go to, uh, between Jerusalem and Galilee. Well, Jesus isn't your normal person, right? Okay? The Bible tells us in this story that he needed to go through Samaria. What the Father had him doing led him through Samaria, not around Samaria. And so they're traveling through it, and they come near this little town called Sychar, and, and they, they stop. It's about the middle of the day. Uh, he sends the disciples into the town to uh, find some food to eat. And he sits down at this well outside of town, a well that had been uh, tradition held that Jacob 
well, you know, the, the, the man God eventually named Israel had actually had dug. So a historic well, he sits down beside it there. He has no way to get anything to drink, but he's sitting there resting. So verse number six of John four says, now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour, and that was measured from the sunrise, so about noontime. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? Okay? And then the, the explanatory phrase that John writes in there, he, John says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, so his, his readers would know that. But see, there, there's two things here that she doesn't understand why he would be talking to her. And, and the first was that she was a Samaritan. I've already explained that one to you. And the second one was that she was a woman. And, and not that women were not valued in, in the Jewish culture, they were valued, but it still was not normal for an individual man to be talking to an individual woman in public like that. There was just certain boundaries and things that they normally didn't cross. But Jesus crossed those boundaries with her. And it's got her attention. Why are you doing this? Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who, say, it is, who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water, talking about himself. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? She isn't really clear on what this is about. Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst but the water that I shall give him will, will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Now, Jesus here, if we go on and find in John chapter 7, he explains more about this. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. When we come to, we receive Christ as Savior, uh, our sins are forgiven, we receive eternal life, God himself, the Holy Spirit, comes to live within us. And he just is this constant source of life. This everlasting life that God has given us. So this is what he's telling her is available to her. He's using this illustration, this practical uh, thing right in front of him, a well, to get her to understand some more important spiritual truths. Well, he's got her attention. Verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. I don't want to have to come do this every day. And by the way, let me mention to you this was not the normal time for the woman to be here getting water. Normally the women would come in the morning, maybe late afternoon, early evening. The women would come together to get the water. She's by herself. There's a reason for that. Let's continue reading. So she says, I want this water. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. Now, doesn't seem like a big deal to me. He said, hey, bring your husband, you know, I'm talking to you, but bring your husband and I'll talk to you. I'll tell you about it. That's what it sounds like. But this statement had to strike fear into this woman's heart. Do you remember how I said that here we are in life, you remember, and this, this stuff happened in our past and we're out here and then something happens, something comes up and to where all of a sudden we, we look back, you remember? 
and it's grabbing us. It's got a hold of us. And the enemy's pointing us to it. Well, that's what's happening to her here. And here's why. Go call your husband and come here. Verse 17. The woman answered and said, um, I, I have no husband. <laughs> She's trying to figure out how to deal with this one. She tells the truth. I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, and that you spoke truly. Five times this woman has been married and probably divorced. We don't have any reason to think she was widowed. Five times married, five times divorced, give up on marriage, just live with the guy. That's where she's at. Now do you understand why it is that she's coming to the well by herself? She's an outcast among the, the women of the town. The woman said to him, I can, uh, Sir, I, I perceive that you are a prophet. Because <laughs> how did he know this about her? Well, he's God, right? And so he knew this about her. And they have more conversation. Jesus pointing out how God is looking for people to worship him. He's telling her uh, uh, you know, how, really how, what she has to come to grips with to have a relationship with Christ himself. Verse 25, jump down there. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. All right, let's, just, let's move on here. Christ is coming. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I am the one who is coming, who will tell you all things. And so here is Jesus bringing up to her the fact that five times she had been married and failed, and the person she's now living with she isn't even married to. How would that make you feel? Do you think this woman has struggled with her own image of herself? What she sees, and that's that, how she feels about herself is undoubtedly reinforced by everyone around her, by the circumstances of her life, and Jesus brings it up to her. But then he just moves on, which is really interesting. Well, let's look at another conversation. This is a much shorter conversation. John chapter 8. It'll be on page 1231 in your Bible. John chapter 8. And we'll start in verse 2. It says, Now early in the morning he, Jesus, came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees, let's stop right there, scribes and Pharisees, the scribes are the ones who copied the, the Old Testament law. They made copies of the Bible, really is what they did. And so they knew the Bible very thoroughly. The Pharisees were those who were very, very strict about trying to keep the rules that were contained in the Old Testament law to the point of making rules about how to keep the rules. Very serious-minded people. But they had a problem with Jesus. Because Jesus talked about the heart, and they liked the outward stuff. Anyway, so they come to him. And the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. 
And when they had, and by the way, the fact that the second story we're looking at here is also a woman is, is, has nothing to, there's no significance to that in our dealings with it today, okay? Just happens to be a woman. They brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, do you get the picture? They brought her and did what? Poof, threw her down in the middle of everybody, right in front of Jesus. They said to him, teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. There is no question here. She is guilty. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. These guys were, how messed up were they? I mean, they felt they were, you know, right, because they're going to protect Judaism, right, from this teacher. But man, they're using this woman. Do they care about this woman? They do not care about this woman, at least not to start with. So they said that they might have something of which to accuse him, because if he said, don't stone her, what do they say? Oh, see, he's against the law. He doesn't keep the law. If he says, do stone her, they go, ha ha, he's no mercy here, this man. You know, they figure they had him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his fingers, though he did not hear. We don't know if he was writing something that they could read or if he was just doodling in the sand. We don't know. So when they continued asking him, so they kept after him, what do you say? Jesus, come on. What do you? He raised himself up and said to them, looks them in the eye, I'm sure, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Go ahead. No sin, throw the stone. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. We're not going to spend time on that, but I think it's interesting that the oldest got it first. Maybe the oldest had their own past more readily in their minds. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of you, yours? Has no one condemned you? Now, up to this point, had anybody condemned her? Had anybody condemned her up to this point? Yeah, you guys still out there, right? Absolutely. And, and we don't know, once again, if she's committing adultery, odds are she's been in a bad place before. They knew who to find. She's used to being condemned. Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Go make better choices. Go do something different. Don't let this define you. Now, as I read those two stories, and we could look at other stories that came in the thing. I, there's something there that is conspicuously absent from this story. The first story and this story. Something that you would expect to find in these stories. Now, 
think about this. Let me give you a hint of what we're talking about. Jesus is God in human form, right? God the Son, the Son of God who existed for all eternity and will exist, became a, a human being, named Jesus. So it's just God in, in the flesh. And what do we know about God? The, you know, the most outstanding attribute of God in the Bible is the fact that he is holy. Remember, he has creatures that declare in heaven 24 hours a day, seven days a week since the beginning of creation and will for always. Holy, holy, holy. And they can't proclaim it enough because it's not enough. They can't say it enough. And holy, you know, I, I don't know where you're coming from in your understanding of things, uh, depending on your background and your religion. Holy to you might mean robes and incense and that kind of stuff. But holy in the Bible is the idea of totally separate from sin. Totally separate from sin. The Bible tells us that, that God is not tempted by sin. It doesn't even desire it, never. And so he, he is not only does he have no sin in him, he is positively holy. Somehow or other, put that on the other side. Okay, he is holy, holy, holy. And what does a holy God do with sin? He what? He judges it. He condemns it. That's, that's in the whole Bible. We can find that. A holy God judges sin. Well, what's absent in these two stories? It's not that there is no sin. There's sin. That's evident. Does Jesus ignore the sin? He doesn't ignore the sin. But here's what's missing. There is no condemnation. There's no condemnation in those stories, are there? The first story with the woman at the well, and yeah, you've had five husbands, and you're living with a guy now who isn't your husband. And then he just goes on. I think he was really challenging her to get her attention. We're going to see that in a little bit. But to really get her to focus, wait a minute, I need to listen to this guy. This guy knows me. He knows the truth about me. I need to pay attention. So he brings it up to her and gets her attention. So, but there's no condemnation there. And in our second story, it goes even beyond that, doesn't it? Not only is there no condemnation on Jesus' part, he says what? I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. Now, how can this be? Holy God judges sin, and yet in our stories, the Son of God, no condemnation. How can this be? Well, we look in the rest of the Bible, we learn some things that help us to understand this. And the first one is a statement the Apostle Paul made in his letter to the Romans in chapter 8, verse 1. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And it goes on and describes how they live. No condemnation. If you are in Christ, that means you have received Christ as Savior. You've acknowledged that you have sinned against God. We've got to deal with the sin. We've acknowledged that we've sinned against God and, and that it's separated from us from Him. We believe Jesus died on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins. We, we believe He rose from the dead, and, and we say to God, God, I, I'm a sinner. I need your forgiveness. And we receive Christ as Savior. That puts you in Christ, and there is therefore now no, how much condemnation? None. No condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. 
Well, how can that be? We still have this issue, right? Okay, well, Paul also writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and he, he tells us this. Now go on to the next uh, verse there. He says that God was in Christ when Christ was on the cross. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. Now let's just stop right there. What he's saying is that when Christ was dying on the cross, where was the responsibility and the penalty for my sin? Where was it? On him, not on me. What was rightfully my sin to pay for, my penalty to pay for, your sin, your sin, a penalty to pay for. No, no, he says, I'm not imputing it to them. I am putting it on my son. What was he doing? He was reconciling the world to himself. Reconciling meaning, hey, I want to restore this broken relationship. This relationship, the sin is, is broken. I want restored. And I'm doing what it takes to restore it because guess what? He is a holy God. Is, is that clear? He is a holy God. Sin must be judged. And God judged it. And he judged it on the cross when Jesus died. He judged it. He paid the penalty. And so what did he do for us then? He dies paying that penalty for our sins. Then we set the receiver, but then he says this, for he made him who knew no sin, talking about Jesus, to be sin for us. Me, the sinful one, he took my place. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God in him. What an exchange, huh? The righteous, holy son of God goes to the cross, dying, paying the penalty for the sins, and his righteousness, I mean, now he's being treated like the guilty one, isn't he? And his righteousness is now available to me. And when I receive Christ as Savior, that's what gets credited to my account. His righteousness. And we, we ought to have known this from the very beginning when Jesus came around. John chapter 3. We know these verses. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? That whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But that the world through him, might be saved. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save. And the reason he could do that is because he knew that sin was going to be condemned when he went to the cross. Now, verse number 18 is telling to us here. So let's look at that. He who believes in him, the one who receives Christ as Savior by putting their trust in him, he who believes in him, what's the next three words? Read them with me is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So we're born with a nature bent towards sin. Uh, we do our own thing. We live out that nature. We commit sin after sin after sin after sin after sin. We are spiritually dead and separated from God. God doesn't have to condemn us. Why? We're already condemned and so he comes with a message I'm not here to condemn you I'm here to save you from the condemnation you already have that is why I have come now what does this have to do with our issue of how do we deal with our sinful past 
Well, this is what has to do with it. The most important thing, you can remember. So if you can envision this stuff that's in your past, whether it's five years ago or 35 years ago or whenever, you envision that in your past. The most important thing you can ever remember about that is that you are not condemned for that. And you can say, I am uncondemned. You are uncondemned. By the way, this is huge. Do you know how huge it is? It's bigger than you know. Because we already talked about we're going to go through life and this is going to happen. It's going to come. It's going to rise again. It's going to come up to us. And, and we're going to, whether we do it consciously or not, we're going to make a choice about how we respond to it. And are we going to, oh yeah, oh man, I wish, you know, just quiet down or, you know, we, we wall ourselves off from relationships because whatever. But instead we can say, wait a minute. I'm not condemned by that anymore. He has set me free from that. That will never, ever be held against me by God, ever. So that means that everything that's working against me on that isn't coming from God. Jesus, I died for that. I paid the penalty for you. Where are your accusers? I don't care who humanly accuses you. The one who knows you best, the one who knows more about that past even than you do, says, neither do I condemn you. And there's a lot more to this sermon. Including how do we deal with stuff that happens now? now it's one thing that's way back in the past, right? Kids in the past together. But what about yesterday? Last night? A week ago? A year ago? What do we do with those things? And we're going to have to pick that up next Sunday. But if you have received Christ as Savior... Uncondemned. Uncondemned. Let's just bow our heads for a minute, if you would, here. If you're here today and you're hearing this and maybe you've never heard it before and you think, wow, Jesus died for all my sins, uncondemned, I never have to pay the penalty for that sins, I can be forgiven and have eternal life, that may be where you're at here today. Or you may have heard this message many, many times, but somehow or other it has become real to you today. If you would like to settle this issue in your life once and for all and, and have all of your sins forgiven because Jesus died for them all, never have to pay the penalty for them and receive eternal life and, and all that goes along with being a Christian. If you're here today and you know, you know what, I have never settled that issue. I have never that one time, once and for all, decision to receive Christ as Savior, but I want to. If that's you right now, with everybody's head bowed, eyes closed, I'm going to pray a prayer, invite you to pray along with me in your heart, pray silently in your heart and mind. 
God knows what you're thinking. If you want to settle this once and for all, have your sins forgiven, have eternal life, pray along with me now. Say, say, God, I know that I have sinned. I know my sins have separated me from you. And I know that my sins will send me to hell. I don't want that, Lord. I believe that Jesus died for my sin and rose again from the dead. And right now, the best I know how, I receive Jesus as my Savior. I'm going to trust what Jesus did to provide forgiveness of my sins. I give my life to you. Amen.